This is Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Primal Screen is about movies, from the ones on the big screen to the ones you stream. Hope you enjoy the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. Hello and welcome to Primal Screen, a show and podcast all about screen culture from movies on the big screen to whatever you're streaming. We are broadcasting tonight from the Triple R studios on the stolen lands of the Kulin Nation. I'm your host, Flick Ford, and on tonight's show, I'm spotlighting some of the Australian filmmakers whose work is currently screening as part of the Melbourne International Film Festival. Um, MIF uh, kicked off last week and it's going to be screening here in Melbourne theatres until the 21st of August and the festival is accompanied by an online program called MIF Play which starts this Thursday and is going to be running until the 28th of August. You can find the full program for both MIF and MIF Play online at mif.com.au and play.mif.com.au so you can book in your tickets as well. So one of the many films screening at MIF is Man on Earth, a documentary that has been described as an unfaltering, compassionate exploration of voluntary assisted dying. It captures the final days of uh, Bob Rosenweig's uh, life. Um, Bob is a 65-year-old Jewish man with Parkinson's disease and has made the decision to end his life. Man on Earth is um, a film of tremendous intimacy that manages to artfully capture the dignity of death with breathtaking honesty. I'm joined now by the director of Man on Earth and indeed one of my favourite directors, Emil Corton-Wilson. Emil, welcome to Primal Screen. Hi there. Thanks so much. Thanks for that lovely introduction. Oh, my pleasure. I think I may have messed up Bob's surname. How do you... Uh, uh, Rosenzweig? Rosenzweig, Rosenzweig. Okay. Rosenzweig, maybe, yeah, you might oh, be right. I'm yeah. not so <laughs> So Bob is um, the subject of your documentary and he's quite a character. Um, he, he went to Woodstock in 69, he's hung out with Blondie and the Sex Pistols in New York. Um, he's done design work for Elton John, Janet Jackson, um, Versace. Um, he's absolutely compelling on screen. How did you first meet him? Yeah, it was a very circuitous uh, process. We were actually working on another film entirely called Traces, which is a thermal imaging project uh, recording human body at the moment of death. So as part of that research, we went out to about, I would say, 1,500 different hospices and death doulas and organisations all around the world. Bob heard about this project, contacted us and said, I'd like to participate in this thermal thing you're doing, um, but what I'd really like is for you to film the last seven days of my life. So it's the first time that uh, I'd been approached mm. by a subject to, you know, with the parameters uh, for the film kind of complete. Yeah. And he contacted us only four weeks before uh, he died. So wow. um, the first phone call was, you know, uh, we were in Melbourne with the producer Alice Jamison Down and, and, and also Chris Luskery and... I mean, as you say, I think within about two minutes of speaking with Bob, I knew that we had to make a film yeah. with him. Um, he is just such a compelling character. He's this amazing, very dark sense of humour. <laughs> yes. uh, you know, he, he, as he says, he's a, really a frustrated thespian and <laughs> massive fan of Lenny Bruce and mm. George Carlin. And you could see, there was a there's a really great theatrical turn of phrase that he had. Um, that uh, and and we also had a lot in common. Weirdly, it was very strange. Yeah, so knew knew straight away that we wanted to make a film. Yeah, um, didn't quite know what that was going to look like in terms of, uh, I mean, outside of the ethical parameters um, being less 
cloudy given that he'd approached us. Yeah, it, it almost seems like it would have to be that way around to, to approach someone who's at the end of their life and to say, hey, I'd love to capture this on film, seems very um, exploitative. So almost necessary for him to be the person to, to bring this about. Absolutely, yeah. Mm. I, I, don't, I, I would, don't think I would ever uh, dream of, of doing that otherwise, no. to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> I, I bet. Um, so I understand that Man on Earth is kind of inspired somewhat by the work of Werner Herzog. Um, Herzog, of course, is is well known for his uh, philosophical documentaries that kind of delve into um, many of the more complex and perhaps sometimes uncomfortable truths of the human experience. Um, but his films often seem to remain at a distance, whereas yours bridge that gap um, in a very, very real sense. Uh, you lived with Bob, is that right, during the filming of this? Um, yeah, this, we, yeah, we we did. And and I think the, the Herzog connection for me is, is really his idea of, uh, I think there's a quote saying, you know, we must create new images or perish. And mm. this idea that it's, you know... Uh, Stylistically, as you say, that there's not a huge amount of similarities, maybe in in the approach or the connection with the subjects and yeah. the way that I make films. But that that fundamental idea of, of looking for uh, new new imagery to to um, you know um, yeah trigger response in an audience they otherwise might not have had, and certainly around this issue, most mm. particularly. Oh yeah, that's very yeah. It's interesting because um, you also. Just to focus a little bit on your filmmaking approach, you also, I understood, lived with the subject of your um, documentary, the Silent Eye, um, the jazz musician Cecil Taylor. Um, so is this something that you feel is necessary, particularly in telling these stories, to, to move in, to completely live in that space with them? Yeah, look, it, it, it's it's something that doesn't always happen like we just uh were working on a, a featured doc in Oklahoma a couple of weeks ago in which you know we were interviewing upwards of 80 people over the course of a week and you know that's an entirely different sort of constellation of a methodology but I think I learned that process while working with Jack Charles on Varsity mm, yeah there was a period where he moved in with with me yeah um, about three years into what was a seven-year shoot and what was beautiful about that was it was it was kind of the dismantling of the usual transactional relationship between documentary maker and subject mm. Jack and I had a chance to become friends and then it, when we sort of picked up the camera again after a period of you know a couple of months it was two friends deciding to you know continue making a film together more so than how you know the dynamic as it was when we started so that felt so good uh you know and uh it was a, a really heartening and and um gratifying experience on so many levels so I've, I've tried to where possible emulate that again so yeah I lived with Cecil Taylor for gee whiz um became kind of his unofficial carer slash archivist for about mm. two years mm. and um and lived with him in, in Brooklyn in New York and mm. um I mean you know I'm drawn to people that I'm just in, innately really I mean want to be friends with and and, mm. and kind of grow to adore so mm. um that process is yeah, it's nothing better. <laughs> it's in, it's lovely hearing you, you talk about it because so many filmmakers, when they're talking about finishing up a film, they need, a, you know, almost a, a gap between films. I mean, you're incredibly prolific. But what I'm curious about is your approach to filmmaking of really immersing yourself in the subject's world. I imagine that's a very emotionally exhausting, and particularly in the case of Bob, who, um, as part of the documentary, he dies. Um, how do you recover after this filmmaking process? Yeah, I mean, 
to, to go back a, a little bit to, in terms of, you know, how we set up a framework for the family and Bob's mm. family to also to, to feel comfortable with the process, we, we uh, from the get-go, we were never going to uh, ask the family to sign any release forms until they'd had a chance to look at the, the rough cut of the film. So yeah. that that emotional recovery process, I mean, this goes for the crew we had as well. So, you know, Jacqueline Fitzgerald and Steve Bond, our sound recordist, and, and Alice, our producer, who are the, the core crew in, um, in Aberdeen. Um, I mean, you know, the, the day after Bob passed, it, it, it was really, uh, it was pretty difficult to, you know, to continue shooting and we mm. sort of shell-shocked and beyond words. Um, but we did return a year later um, to screen the rough cut to his son Jesse, who was his primary carer, and um, to spread Bob's ashes, and I mean, again, it was just a you know to kind of have sit down, have dinner together, and watch this film together, and then the mm. following day, spread Bob's ashes at the local beach in Washington State in the U.S. You know, the, uh, um, I, I don't think I've ever been as nervous <laughs> to screen <laughs> a, a film, but you know, thankfully um, Jesse was okay, and um, so I, the recovery happens in in different ways I think and mm. unexpected delayed kind of responses of all yeah. sorts yeah and what a beautiful gift to give to the family because without even knowing Bob I feel like the audience gets to know him and you capture something so honest and I, I want to talk a bit more about the honesty that you're able to bring out in Bob I mean like I said he's so captivating he's so lively on screen you know, the film is capturing his final days on Earth and he has made the decision to end his life after this long battle with Parkinson's. There is a really beautiful monologue that Bob delivers in a direct address to the camera and I'm going to play a clip now for our listeners because I think it really, you get a sense of him as a person in this, so I'll play that now. You're, you're a horrible, evil, menacing disease that ruins people's lives and family lives and careers and you take away their self-respect so why did you come to me what did I do in this world that ever set you off to come to me give me give me a reason why you did it to me why you took away my job why you took away my wife why you took away my kids You controlled my life. You, you took everything away from me. You went into my life and you tore it apart and stole everything. And now I have to make the, made the, the decision that is going to finally take away everything and it's going to cause me to, 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 to die. Hey, Look at me. I'm telling you what I feel and you're going to listen. I feel like that address is so much um, to Parkinson's as it is to the audience as well. There's a, there's a real sense of being captured um, by Bob in that moment. And I, I feel like that monologue for me personally had so much resonance because I've experienced chronic pain as part of my disability and I think it really captures that intersection of pain and frustration and confusion that comes with the diagnosis that directly impacts how you live your life. Um, voluntary assisted dying in Australia in kind of recent years um, has had been sort of the subject of many inquiries and parliamentary debates of law. Um, 
was this a, was this something I know that Pob came up to you, but did you what was your did you have any hesitation at about approaching this subject matter for the film? Yeah, look, we had been doing um, a, a, an amount of research into um, a range of different funeral practices around the world for another project entirely. So we'd sort of become somewhat familiar with the the way in which um, state to state legislation had been passed in the US. Mm. Um, I was very tentative about the film being perceived as an, a, a, an overt advocacy film. Mm. Um, I really wanted to um, make it much more a, a portrait of Bob and, and the specific, you know, specificity of of his experience. And as you say, you know, um, with the, the the pain and uh, the also like the hallucinations he was experiencing as part of the Louis bodies, um, which is a dementia uh, part of the the, um, the dementia that um, that condition leads to. Um, so. And, and look, the, the more we researched into that, um, <clears throat> while I'm absolutely, you know, for that uh, that legislation and, and mm. for people to have the right to, to choose, in the US there is certainly some, you know, quite frightening examples of health insurance companies badgering, you know, poor people with wow. letters saying, you know, have you heard that this is an option for you? And mm. so there's... It's definitely... It's, 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 it's a, it is a fine line. So mm. um, I hope if, 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 if nothing else... The film illuminates uh, what it is to know the moment of your death in advance for this particular human being, but also, yeah. you know, it, it's also a, a a film that you know from audiences it, it's been described as being very kind of nourishing and surprisingly kind of uplifting in the sense that hopefully I would hope that you know one thing audiences you know take away um, after seeing it is is that they lead their life with maybe a little more urgency, a little more honesty, mm. and to as one audience member said, I'm. You know, once I stop crying, I'm going to go call my mum. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. 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 And uh, you do capture a lot of phone calls that Bob has with his children mainly and um, and his partner. And I thought that was really, yeah, for me it definitely brought home the importance of family and, and fa- friends, friendships as well and just like that, the community around you. Um, for listeners who have just uh, tuned in, um, I'm speaking with director Emil Corn Wilson about his recent documentary, Man on Earth. Um, one of the other things that I thought was was really quite shocking, and I suppose this again speaks to the intimacy of your filmmaking approach, but there is a scene in which um, Bob, I think this is perhaps the most difficult scene in the film, but uh, after one of these phone conversations, Bob um, hangs up on his um you know when he's finished his phone call with his son and he lets out uh this real guttural scream uh wail sound and i i thought that something that is so important and so rarely seen on film and perhaps sometimes outside of the ability of maybe feature um or fictional film is the honesty of that moment and i think that for people at the end of their life there is a real horror to that um and we don't see this in a medical sense but I mean in an emotional sense um was it tricky for not just yourself but for the people who are working on this film with you not to feel um I don't know it's quite it's really uh challenging material Uh, absolutely I mean I think in that moment you do see Jacqueline um hesitate with mm. with her camera and and actually button off for a moment and there is a jump cut in that moment as mm. well. What, what what isn't in the frame is Bob's two um, doctors were actually sitting just off to the side 
holding him um, by the, you know, they had his hand sort of laid on his legs. So um, what, in that moment, what could possibly be perceived as us being, you know, a, a little, um, yeah, well, less than less than compassionate in continuing in that moment. He, he did have people around him in, in that moment. And I, yeah. But I, I also agree with you that I think, you know, that that scene has, you know, some audiences have been found it somewhat problematic and taken oh, really? take issue with it. Yeah, um, we even to the extent that we we did experiment with um, excising it from the cut for a, right. just to see what it did, and it, and it felt so so wrong to not have uh, yeah. us experience that with him. Absolutely, I'm very glad you included it because I actually think it was painful to sit through, but it actually felt. Um, there's so much in this documentary that is felt very real um, and I resonated with, but that moment, um, I just, I can't think of another moment in cinema that I've felt so perfectly captures that end of life. And I think it's really hard to fake that. Um, so it was actually, I think, a really important inclusion. And it wasn't, um, you know, other films that I think of that do talk about death in a very different tone, um, <laughs> excuse me for the reference, but um, Life and Death of Bob Flanagan, which a documentary from many moons ago. But um, there's a real irreverence to that film uh, and a lot of it is focused on the failing body. Um, but I I'd, I'd sort of – I don't think we really see that so much. We see, you know, Bob obviously needs some assistance getting around, but I actually think that more than anything he seems so lively – and perhaps people who have any hesitation around voluntary assisted dying or euthanasia kind of more generally may feel um, an element of discomfort with that. But I, for me personally, I was thinking there's so much that is outside of Bob's control and this is something where he gets to determine this is the day that I'm going to die, this is how I'm going to do it, which I thought was really a beautiful thing to capture on screen. And look, that, that's absolutely right. That, that was the other part of Bob's character that drew us to him so mm. so intensely. It was his really incandescent, highly energised, kind of sparky physicality yeah. and personality, you know. Like um, he did not seem like, even though he had been, you know, by multiple doctors been given less than six months to live so it was deemed appropriate for, mm. for, this, um, for this choice, at the same time he doesn't seem like someone that only has seven days you know mm. um and what was beautiful in that also was something that we realized over the course of the shooting was each story that he would tell as he finished that particular anecdote of a you know a peter sellers film he'd seen as a child yeah, or yeah. impersonating al pacino or whatever he was doing <laughs> there would be this inevitable moment of silence where mutually we realized that that was the last time he'd tell that story yeah. And that more than likely that was the last time you'd have that memory. So this mm. is, but because of that, it was even more charged. There was a, and time itself took on this very elastic, very intensified quality. So he, you know, he, he was really seeking um, such connection and intimacy in those final days. Um, you know, his son had said that, you know, prior to that, for the six or nine months prior, he really had become like quite a recluse, like, mm. you know, not wanting to socialize or see anyone. So we witnessed this kind of very explosive um, firework-like um, moment in his in his life. It was beautiful. Yeah. No, I'm, I think it's, it's, it's such a powerful film and it, there's so much to unpack with it. I understand as part of MIF you are doing a talk that will be focusing not just on your documentary but about the discussion of grief, grief in more general terms. Is, is that right? Can you tell us a bit more about that event? 
Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, along with the three screenings, uh, we have a, a talk on the 21st of August at 1.30pm at the Wheeler Centre. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, not all the panellists, uh, um, I think there's a couple of guest panellists still to be confirmed, but it's going to be a really, uh, yeah, bracing and uh, I'm hoping, um, uh, yeah, rich conversation around both, yeah, the issue of medical assisted dying, but also death in film and portrayals of death in film. So, mm. uh, and it's free, which is always good. Yeah, <laughs> love a freebie. Um, and I should also mention that the screenings for Man on Earth at MIF are Wednesday the 17th of August, 6pm, Friday the 19th of August, 9.15pm, and Sunday the 21st of August, which I'm guessing would be after the talk, um, and that's at 3.15 at Acme. Um, there are, yeah, I I feel as though um, I don't want to gush too much, but I really am am so amazed by your filmography, and I wish we could unpack it in even more detail. But I'm sure there'll be an opportunity to at the Q and A for people to ask questions a bit more about that. Um, just before you go, though, I understand Carnation is in pre production. Is that uh, post production? Where are you at with Carnation? Yeah, Carnation, which is a um, like now almost eight year <laughs> uh, in the making um, narrative feature, and there's actually also a, um, a sister film uh, which we which we're working on, which is the same world, the same characters that oh, we worked right. with in Oklahoma, but the documentary iteration of that world. So um, that we just got back from Oklahoma shooting shooting. Um, yeah, like another eighty or so interviews. So oh, wow. <laughs> there'll be two two films coming out next year, which is which is super exciting. Can I also just quickly give a yeah. shout out to the wonderful Elena Lodkina and Thomas M. Wright and Eddie Martin and David Eastill and all the great I'm just so excited about MIF this year. There's so many yeah. friends and wonderful filmmakers and Melbourne filmmakers and yeah. Oh, it's tremendous. And that is a big reason why I wanted to spotlight some of the Australian filmmakers who are part of the festival. Um, I will be speaking with uh, Elena Lodkina later tonight. Um, yeah, it's such an amazing, and it was lovely seeing you at the screening of, of Thomas Wright's um, film, The Stranger. I would love to chat with you some more about that because uh, that's another one of my faves so far of the festival. It's great. Um, so yeah, great. exceptional. And that's it's got a lot of controversy surrounding it. And um, yeah, I, uh, there's a lot to unpack with it. Um, Emil, it is always a pleasure chatting with you. So thank you so much for your time tonight. No, thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. Cheers. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Flick Ford. Here in Melbourne, we're exactly five days into the Melbourne International Film Festival. MIF is a fantastic showcase of some of the best new international features, as well as lots of local gems, both new and retro. And on tonight's show, I'm spotlighting some of the Australian filmmakers who are featured in this year's festival. Earlier, I spoke with Emil Corton-Wilson about his documentary Man on Earth, and I'm now joined by writer and director of the 2017 film Strange Colours and this year's release, Petrol. It's Elena Lodkina. Welcome to Primal Screen, Elena. Hello, and thank you for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm actually such a big fan of uh, your directorial debut, Strange Colours. So I'm very excited to chat with you about your recent film, Petrol. The film is about an idealistic and rather earnest film student called Eva who becomes fascinated with actor-artist Mia and makes her the subject of her graduate film. Now, I know that Petrol uh, has many strange and surreal twists and turns, but how much of it is uh, based on your own experience of film school? Um, There's definitely... uh, I I drew inspiration from things that I knew and observed or or heard um, through friends or 
or you know just the stories that were yeah part, I guess part of my uh, life directly or indirectly uh, but I think the approach to the autobiographical kind of element in the film is not so much autobiographical but more it, uh, I'm more interested in personal cinema and that's what I was kind of pursuing so um, even though the protagonist shares a lot of resemblances with with my own biography it's it, it's 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 very fictional and uh yeah everything is everything is kind of filtered through this personal lens but um not in uh ways that you might expect perhaps um and but uh but more uh, specifically to do with film school i think that um yeah, the, the kind of mood of, yeah, the mood of searching is is something that I, I learned and or knew about in film school. Actually, go to film school, I, I did a communications degree with a major in film in Sydney. So that also is like a little bit part of the of her degree in the, uh, in the film, that it's like a little bit, not such a focused kind of film school, it's like a little bit a mishmash of various courses. Yes, absolutely, and definitely the characters that, that she comes across do, do play into that, that sense of university life being something more than just film school. Um, I actually was reminded a lot of uh, Joanna Hogg's Souvenir Part 1 and 2 um, in that kind of sense of the meta filmmaking um, aspects. Of course, I think this is quite a departure. Hogg's film is, is very much situated in realism and like I said, your film does tiptoe, <laughs> initially at least, into surrealism. Can you talk us through how the concept uh, for Petrol first came about? Uh, yes, and I'm glad that it's lovely that you man- mentioned Joanna Hogg. I really love her body of work. Um, I was familiar with it um, when I was writing Petrol, but it, I, I wrote Petrol before I watched the souvenir, so it's, it, it was kind of a wonderful coincidence to find her delving into similar subject matter. At the same time, the Petrol is not about a filmmaker in the same way. It's not about a filmmaker's journey. It's about um, the, the filmmaking process becomes kind of part of uh, her ex- wider exploration in the film, which is more to do with her friend and her um, kind of search for identity and trying to understand this friend that she can't quite grasp. But yeah, I was, uh, the the, the film was written in a kind of diaristic process uh, where I I knew that I wanted to explore this central relationship between these two young women and I knew knew who they were and what the nature of their relationship would be and what kind of questions it would open up. Um, But then I just took a lot of notes um, over the years, overheard kind of conversations, um, personal, you know, dreams, um, fantasies, um, things from books and literature and just various observed moments of real and imagined kind of experiences. And I, I wanted to kind of create this collage where, yeah, the film would become like a constellation of various moments and those moments would be put together or stitched together through 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 the 
a very specific kind of logic of the film. And, and so the film is both this, yeah, the, the, the focus is on the central relationship, but it's also a kind of world, an exploration of a world. Yeah. So mm. I've, and I've been working on the film for, I've been working on the script for many years. Like the idea was first um, born before, I think, kind of before Strange Colors. Oh, actually. really? So, that's, in, yeah. that's really interesting because they seem like yeah. quite, quite different films. And I'd like to talk a little bit later about some of the similarities that I can see. Um, but with Petrol, I see this kind of repeating motif of duality and it does very much evoke cinema's kind of long-held um, obsession with the double. I'm reminded here of Inga Bergman's Persona um, and a more contemporary example, maybe Darren Aronofsky's Black Swan. One of the ways in which you're really communicating the difference between these two women who are in the lead is, is through costuming. I understand Phoebe Taylor is the costume designer for your film, but can you give us some insight into what you're hoping to achieve with these outfits and, and how they shift over the course of the film? Oh, that's such a lovely question. And, you know, um, actually Phoebe managed to make to Locarno, our premiere was um, yesterday, and uh, somebody in the audience asked this. Oh, really? Said, Please, because Phoebe, <laughs> Phoebe was there, and um, yeah, you know, it was uh, uh, very exciting for me to work with a costume designer uh, and and with with the costume department, which in, on Strange Colors, um, Lucy, who actually ended up working on locations and a bit of casting on petrol but she did like costume and makeup and hair and everything and just kind of bunch of stuff so it was like really small department it wasn't much department <laughs> it was just kind of lucy and also on strange colors you know it was there was not much potential for costumes because it was uh very much part of the conceit that everyone would be wearing the same things all the time and mostly their own things so it was just like two costumes for the for the main protagonist. Um, but I love clothes and um, I was uh, very excited to have this kind of extra tool um, to, you know, create color palettes and the kind of feel of the film and the, play, the, the playfulness of it. And because these characters in Petrol do inhabit a world where uh, clothes, there's clothes and they change clothes and um, change characters and, um, through clothes and kind of yeah play with identity I guess um, and and that is such a big part of cinema and yeah you know the doppelganger um, motif also um, I was fascinated with um, kind of 19th century literature doppelgangers um, in you know in Russian literature in Gogol and Dostoevsky and um, also in Edgar Allan Poe and the kind of like sinister um side of that um an inconclusive kind of side of that uh motif and i think the clothes play into that and how um both kind of frivolous and not because it's such a big part of everyday life and actually yesterday when the the the, the audience member asked about this question um it, i was reminded of um uh, this quote that I, I quite love uh, by um, the French director Jean Renoir when he was asked, uh, do movies change the world? And he said, well, no, but perhaps they change the way we dress, which is not <laughs> nothing. <laughs> and I, I think that this is, there's something really interesting in this mm. comment, you know, that, um, yeah, because it makes us think about the material 
the nature or the material expression of our inner worlds uh on a you know and and consumer culture and Mm. um you know various cultural points kind of colliding now that we have so much choice over clothes and i think that was yeah that's also another part of the film and kind of even um there's there's also because there's different kind of scenes portrayed in the film i think through that we also open up various class structures in mm. in contemporary australian society and i think that clothes also have to do with that but sometimes then it's not the way things are not the way they seem you know somebody might be dressed down but they're wealthy and somebody might be dressed overdressed but they're not and um yeah i, I was kind of interested in playing with that in the film as well mm. and i can't help but feel like sometimes costuming um and clothes in more ge- in more general sense are sometimes devalued because they occupy quite a feminine space um with with this film petrol you you know pre- your your debut of course strange colors seems to be really quite a fascinating investigation of masculinity in this remote country town and there seems to be in uh, Petrol a real focus on female identity and female friendship. Um, was that a conscious decision to have a, a real shift away from your, your debut? Yes, I mean, um, I'm interested in many things and I think that uh, Strange Colours are so far away, you know, from my everyday life that uh, I had a real desire to do something more intimate and close and closer to something that I knew. Mm. So it's in that sense... Um, yeah, there's a real familiarity in petrol and, and an in, a different kind of intimacy. I think that the, there's an intimacy in Strange Colours too, but it's, yeah, it's kind of an outsider's perspective. Mm. And it's, in a way, it's also an outsider's perspective in petrol. We try to kind of use that, um, yeah, that kind of get outsider's gaze um, in both films. Yeah, there, there's like a tonal quality that I very much enjoy in that. Um, in that decision but also yeah really wanting to um, make a film about women and women's relationships and various kind you know the somebody made a comment yesterday that uh, you know it's not a queer film by any means because the relationship is very platonic but um, somebody made a comment that you know in a way it's quite queer to perhaps it's quite queer to centralize a platonic relationship you know it's that yeah. you know not all relationships are um sexual companionships and and this this film is kind of delves into that that mm. you know the the very the very important relationships in one's life or people that carry you away or fascinate you or affect you in a very formative manner might not be your partner your sexual partner mm. which i think is kind of almost assumed in um yeah in culture and movies yeah. um so i yeah i was really interested in that and and then also uh making a film that is you know both strange colors is a feminine film as well because it's a yeah woman's gaze that's um, true yeah and another young woman at the center as well but yeah here it's um really central of course mm. and yeah that was really pleasurable to me to, to work and also to be able to work with two um such wonderful actresses uh, Natalie Morris and Hannah Lynch who are just uh, were a pure joy and I mean we had a really fantastic um cu- the, the whole cast it's like a ensemble cast um <laughs> no um Bobby um Downey who's never acted on screen before and just does such a marvelous job um with his uh, you know, really cantankerous character, Belle. 
Um, and then, yeah, a whole bunch of, you know, similar to Strange Colors, like there's a whole bunch of uh, people in the film who are not uh, professional actors and they have these beautiful little cameos. And yeah, I think people in Melbourne will probably recognize some faces <laughs> because, <laughs> you know, yeah, it's like a Melbourne, Melbourne crowd. Absolutely. Hey, wait for me. Wait up. Hey, look at the moon. When I was little, I prayed to go to the moon. I was more of a sun person myself. I was scared of the dark. I was a scaredy cat. I'm so sorry that you dropped this on the street. Oh my god. That's lucky. Have we met before? You look kind of familiar. Oh, no, don't think so. Eva was the name of my sister. Hey, you could stay in that spare room if you wanted. What if I'm just a mediocrity with nothing to say? Oh, please, you don't need to She's kind of hard to get to know. Yeah, she's a fucking lunatic. Sorry. For listeners who have just tuned in, um, I'm speaking with Elena Lodkina about her recent film, Petrol. Um, as I mentioned, I spoke uh, with Emil Corton Wilson earlier. You were the co-editor for his 2016 documentary, The Silent Eye, and he was the executive producer on your debut feature, Strange Colours. Both yours and Emil's films also feature the actor Danny P. Jones. Can you tell me a bit about your working relationship with Emil and the impact these collaborations have had? Well, it's actually so nice to talk about it right now because um, Emil was really kind of the reason why I originally moved to Melbourne or my excuse to move to Melbourne because uh, I met him uh, when I was graduating from university and, yeah, he said, you know, intern on my on my projects and I did, I you know, I took up his offer and uh, through him ended up, um, working in a lot of different things, uh, but also meeting a whole bunch of different people who all I'm I work with them today. And like Kate Laurie, the producer, that's how we met, and we've been working ever since um, together. So yeah, Emil has been like in that um, yeah opening up a whole kind of world, and then also um, especially working editing the film um, The Silent Die. Um, I got to really uh, see how he works um, as a director, as an editor. No, he kind of is um, a very versatile filmmaker and um, does many roles. And I, I learned a lot and creatively as well. You know, we've always had uh, really inspiring conversations about cinema. And, 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 you know, yeah, I think that, yeah, he's, he's an important figure for not just me, I think for many filmmakers who were in Melbourne at that point, I think that they somehow had probably something to do with Emil. <laughs> um, so it's so it's such an honour to be showing a film at MIF in the same year as he's premiering in Australia his documentary. It's so exciting and everyone yeah. should check it out. Yes, and, you know, absolutely. it's also just a really big year for Melbourne Film with it, the Melbourne on Film programme and... David Steele's The Plains, which is also a very exciting film that um, the listeners should check out. And, you know, there's 
yeah, there's just so many interesting Australian films in the pro- it's huge for Australian movies this year. Yes, absolutely. And and just kind of digging a bit more into um, the team that you're working with, Michael Latham was the cinematographer for Strange Colours, and he returns as a, a cinematographer uh, for your for Petrol. Listeners may be familiar with Latham's work from Kitty Green's uh, The Assistant, and he also was um, the cinematographer Rod Ratchin's Buoyancy. As I mentioned before, there are lots of surreal and unsettling elements in petrol. I sometimes felt as though the camera movement and the framing was a bit reminiscent of Italian horror films. And was this an intentional creative decision or or something that just came up organically when shooting the film? We didn't, Michael and I, it's it's a real joy to collaborate with Michael again on this film. Um, He's a very talented cinematographer. Um, We didn't so consciously... In fact, we didn't really look to Italian horror films um, in 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 the in the preparation for the for the shoot. But we did we used the zoom lens. This is something that was new and fresh and exciting. We kind of made that choice really early on. We both got really excited about zooming. Um, <laughs> but and I think that the zoom lens, you know, it's it is really associated, and it it was a vintage zoom lens as well that Michael sourced. Um, and so that lens is sort of associated with 70s cinema. So perhaps that's the connection that, that you kind of spotted. You know, even we even like rewatched the conversation and films yeah. like that because also there's this for your um, sub element to the film and uh, the kind of fluidity and so of, of the camera gaze that kind of just floats and spots things and the, the, yeah toes the line between the subjective and the objective and I think that that roaming kind of zooming way of um looking at <laughs> looking at things in the film um maybe it is a little bit reminiscent of yeah the kind of paranoid 70s you know watching things blow up that kind of stuff yeah so I think that there'd be probably a stylistic connection there I'm always really interested in uh pacing in film and uh both your feature length films have moments of slowness that seems almost at odds sometimes with film convention. Um, This isn't to suggest, of course, that there's no structure, but rather that you seem to want the audience to settle um, into a film and kind of allow for it to unfold. What what do you think is the significance of slowness and perhaps even stasis in a film? I think that this is a very complex question, in fact, because actually, to me, probably this is directing is finding pace and that's that is what director kind of brings to the film in a way the measure of time and it's very personal and i think the sense of time each person has their own sense of time passing and that sense of time passing can also change throughout your life and i think that yeah the filmmaker you know they they put they move things in the frame and they move the camera and so through those two kind of relations you that's you create a sense of time time passing and yeah you know people might find my films on the slower side (laughs) definitely I like for things to be a little bit slower maybe I'm a little bit slow or something but I often (laughs) like you know in in, in movies now I'm sometimes like what what happened I didn't get it um I just miss things when they and people are cutting so fast and you know cuts are like insanely like it's like a second less than a second and you're kind of you've got already 
like three sort of angles <laughs> of a scene and I, I, I just get a bit lost. So I just like to settle in and look at look at something and allow the audience to look at the frame and you can see, you know, the, the details of the mise-en-scene and how um, something in the background that might give you a clue about the scene uh, and the colors and kind of taking the, the costumes that we're talking about and, um, yeah, the world of the, the film and also the actors' faces, you know, which is it, it, what they do is so sort of subtle and exciting that I think you need a little bit of time to to see to see what people are doing on screen um just like in real life you know it's it's nice to kind of sit and observe things and take your time and look at buildings and trees and whatnot and you, you never quite spend enough time doing that so I think it's nice to do that through cinema uh, so that's probably part of my approach but yeah I, I also think it's yeah it's not so controlled you know you kind of on on the set you have to make decisions very intuitively so that's that's where that time kind of comes from and yeah that you end up with 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 your time <laughs> your, your personal time and then I understand that you are obviously in the midst of the festival circuit for petrol, but do you have any other projects that are currently in the pipeline that we can look out for? <laughs> I'm very uh, overwhelmed with the, you know, putting the film out into the world uh, at the moment, especially on two sides of the world in like a week, um, which is crazy, especially um, I've been in Europe for like a f- already a few weeks so I, I don't have the jet lag but you know Kate Laurie the producer she's um just flown into Locarno uh, to Switzerland like a few days ago and she's gonna fly back in a few days and it's just it's totally mental um, <laughs> but oh so much fun and so cool such an adventure so I've been yeah I think I've been um kind of a bit overwhelmed with with everything to do with petrol uh but I have you know, something's been um, sort of stewing in my brain, especially uh, on these on these last few weeks of travels. And um, I'd love to. It, it's it, yeah, this film, the idea that I'm kind of I can't really say much about it because it's so fresh. But um, I'd love to set it in another location, in an, another location in Australia. Oh, sounds very exciting! Yeah, a, a third location, a third <laughs> spot. Um, and I understand that you're going to be there in person for some of the screenings that we have here in Melbourne um, as part of MIV. So if listeners would like to see Elena's film Petrol, there are screenings scheduled at MIV over the next few weeks and the film will also be shown regionally in Castlemaine, Achuca and Mildura. So plenty of opportunities to check it out. Simply head to miff.com.au for full details and to book your ticket. Elena, it has been an absolute pleasure chatting with you thank you so much for joining me on primal screen thank you so much for having me and um yeah i hope your listeners are able to make it to some of the screenings in melbourne and um please bring some some of your questions to the q a and i'd love to i'd love to have a chat with you and absolutely if there's (laughs) if there's any questions that we have missed on tonight's show um please do bring them along to the q a screenings that are happening later this week uh you've been listening to primal screen on triple r with flick ford all the music that i've played tonight has come from mikey young's beautifully atmospheric album curtain so i really hope you've enjoyed the tunes so on tonight's show um i did a bit of 
the spotlight on some of the Australian filmmakers who are featured in this year's MIF, I spoke with Emil Corton Wilson about his documentary Man on Earth. And I also spoke with writer and director Elena Lodkana about her film Petrol. Both films, as I said, are screening as part of the Melbourne International Film Festival alongside an amazing uh, lineup of fellow Australian filmmakers. Um, there's ones Eddie Martin uh, has got his documentary Firefront about the 2019-2020 bushfires, as well as his film We Were Once Kids, which revisits Larry Clark's iconic 90s film Kids. Um, there's also Jennifer Ross's Age of Rage about Aussie punk bands from the 70s and 80s. Uh, there's Del Catherine Barton's Blaze, which is starring Simon Baker, uh, Gus Berger's The Lost City of Melbourne, and Thomas Wright's The Stranger, which I, I saw on Friday and can highly recommend that. It gave me a lot to think about. Um, so for the full MIF program and, and to book your tickets to some of those films, please head to MIF.com.au. I want to say a big thank you to my guests for tonight's show, Emil Corton-Wilson and Elena Lodkana. It was lovely speaking with both of you. Thanks for listening to Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. 